0: The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 is page number 840. If you're using one of those Bibles there in the seats in front of you, three thoughts for you as we begin this morning. One. Wes, Katie, hope I don't embarrass you with this, but I just had the best, like, song time ever. I mean, I mean that with all sincerity. Like, probably my favorite in a long time, sitting there with Gentry behind me, singing at the top of his lungs. I just, I just sat there and just kept listening to him more than I was listening to anybody else around me, and I was just so thankful for that. Thank you guys for parenting him like that. It was just, it was a real blessing to hear that, just for me in my heart this morning. So, that was one thing. Two, uh, hi charismatics. I don't... <laughs> Who knew, right? We were all over the year, all this time we didn't know, and now this morning we learned. Hi, primitive Baptists. Yeah, Holly's owning it. <laughs> primitive Baptists would never do that, by the way, ever. Yeah, raising the roof, not going to happen in a primitive Baptist church. That was funny. Uh, Three, I want to just let you guys know kind of the plan for us this week and next Sunday. We're not going to be here next Sunday. We're actually leaving for vacation. The minute I say amen, I'm going to walk there, take my mic off, and run away. And I have to do that because if I don't do it then, I'm going to stop and talk for an hour. And so if you're visiting with us today, thank you for being here. Hope you come back again. I hope you talk to some other people. It just won't be me today, all right? All right. You don't need to talk to me, I don't have anything to share with you of any value, but I'm glad that you were here with us today, and everybody else, we will see you in two Sundays. We're going up to Chicago for a few days, I will not bring you back pizza, I will eat it all myself. (laughs) You're in Mark chapter 5, we're going to read verses 21 to 43, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer, if you will please look at verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Our hearts and minds this morning so that we can focus on this very important passage of scripture. We have over the past several weeks been trying to get to know you as king. We've seen you be king over chaos. We have seen you be king over evil. And now today, Father, in this story, we see you as king over death. Death, this hunter that stalks us all from the moment we're born this thing that so many fear you have come and defeated once and for all and so this morning we gather not to worship a savior who has simply died who was a great man a great teacher we come and worship a resurrected king who not only lives forever, but promises life to all those who place their faith in him. And so this morning, Father, as we look at these words, please help us to see them with the eyes of faith. Help us to remember that you are the only one who can offer life and that the life we want, want is not found in this world or anything connected to it, but is ultimately and only found in you and in what you are bringing. And so we thank you for your word this morning. Please help me to be clear as I present it. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. I had an opportunity, I think it was uh, three Saturdays ago now, to speak at a Crisis Pregnancy Center event that they had. I think it was like a volunteer appreciation breakfast kind of thing. And so they very kindly asked me to go. And I really enjoyed the time. I always enjoy anything I ever have to do with them, except for one component that I didn't really care for, and that's that they made me sit at the head table which I'm not really a head table kind of guy, like I don't like that, but there we were up front, and it would have been uh, pretty miserable except for the fact that I met three really interesting people there at the head table uh, with me. One one was uh, Toby DeBoss's wife, Karen, who I did not believe actually existed prior to that moment. I joked with her, and I hope I didn't in- uh, <laughs> offend her in doing so, but I joked that I thought maybe he was just a single guy, and he was like, you know, pretending to be married and told people he had a, a great wife named Karen, but never saw her. I think she's a behind-the-scenes kind of lady, and so she tends to not put herself out there. So we got to talk to her and meet her. That was pretty fun. Uh, two, we met Janet Kime, uh, the lady who actually started CPC, who it's named after. The Kime Centers is its normal name. And so we got to talk to her for a little bit and get to hear her story of how the Kime Centers began, how Crisis Pregnancy Center began. That was interesting. She and I actually share a love of genealogy and history. Who knew? So we, I know that now. She even gave me her card, so I can call her now if I want to. I'm in. Uh, the third, the third person we met there at the head table was a, a guy, a young man from Germany, whose name is very German, Antonio. Um, he was. I couldn't remember his name. I had to ask Desiree this morning because I was like, it's like I kept going through Spanish names and none of them were seeming right. His father was from his grandfather, excuse me, was from Spain and he was named after his grandfather. So even though he's German, thoroughly German, his name is Antonio we had to talk to him for a bit. His dad runs a CPC there in Germany. And he was sent by his dad to come stay in the U.S. for the summer so he could basically intern there at CPC and kind of learn some best practices, some stuff that they do do here that perhaps they don't do as well over there so that they could learn. So he was there, and Jamie was sitting next to him. And Jamie has uh, always had this love of Germany. It's like her favorite part of Busch Gardens. She's uh, (laughs) a... She's had this love of Germany. If you've never been there, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, her father is half German. His, his name is Winter. Last name is Winter or Winter. As I think his mother is full Italian, so he's German-Italian. That explains a lot about my father-in-law. Um, she took German. Yeah, he won't listen to this. He... Uh, She took German in high school. She went to Germany, I think, in high school for a couple of weeks. So she's had this kind of interest in German stuff. And so we're sitting there next to Antonio, and she's like chatting him up. Well, what's it like there? What's this like? What's that like? She's talking to him quite a bit. Really enjoyed it. And at the end, I got to talk to him a little bit as well. And in the process of talking, we were discussing how sometimes things don't translate quite right when you're trying to go back and forth between two languages, you know what I'm talking about, right? And we were specifically dealing with phrases and figures of speech because he used or he tried to use an English figure of speech, and I cannot for the life of me remember what it was, but it was completely wrong. Like one of those moments that you're like, oh, what? (laughs) And so I started to talk to him about this a little bit, about the concept of using figures of speech across languages across cultures. And he tried to share one with me that was a German figure of speech. And it was something to the effect of going to sit by the river to look at the boat or something like that. And I'm like, what does that mean? It basically means I'm going to do nothing. Okay. If you're going to go sit by the river and look at something, you're going to do nothing. I'm like, oh, okay, now I guess I kind of get it. But it it got me thinking about just the whole concept of phrases and figures and speech in general. And I, I wrote a few down that when we use them in our language and in our culture, they make complete sense to us, but they probably wouldn't make sense to a lot of other languages. For example, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Like, you say that to anyone who isn't from America, who they're going to have no clue what you're communicating there, that something has come to an end, you've reached the end of the conclusion of it, and that's just the way it happened. It's the way the cookie crumbles. Uh, too many cooks spoil the soup. Got too many people involved with something, it's not going to turn out right. Uh, someone being described as a bull in a china shop. You know, Again, if you don't understand the, the nuances there, it's not going to make any sense. Making a mountain out of a molehill, there's, there's a lot of them that we could mention, but there's one particular that's been on my mind all week in relation specifically to this passage that we're looking at this morning and it's the, the figure of speech about putting a band-aid on a problem. Okay you, you heard people say that something major is going wrong and someone comes along and tries to do a minor fix and we say that's just putting a band aid on it, right? It's not actually fixing it. That that figure of speech has has been in my mind all week looking at this particular passage, and I think you'll understand why when we get to the end of today's message. Today we're going to look at the third and final story or scene here in this section that Mark has put together, which is designed to show us that all the things that Jesus has been teaching us about the kingdom of God back in Mark chapter 4 are true that he is the king, and that he is bringing this kingdom into the world. Because it's one thing, of course, to proclaim that you're a king and to proclaim that you're bringing a kingdom. It's another thing to to show it, to to prove it. And so to show us that Jesus' proclamation of his kingdom is, you know, for real, Mark has arranged three just over-the-top amazing stories that are designed to show us that there is no danger, no enemy, no obstacle that could possibly, possibly stand against Jesus or in any way thwart God's plan to bring about this this kingdom. There's nothing that he cannot overcome. And the danger, the obstacle, the enemy that was in the first scene was was the forces of chaos that are present in this world. So there they are out that night on the boat. They're crossing from Capernaum, where he'd been teaching, over to the other side of the sea. And as they go, this big storm comes up, Right? And they think they're going to die. And the question for us as readers is, well, who can overcome this? Who could possibly overcome a storm? Nobody can do that, right? That's, just, that's impossible. Well, apparently not, because Jesus can he just, with the word, does the thing that seems completely and totally impossible in any other normal situation. He he calms the sea, and we see in that that he's king over chaos. The, the danger, the obstacle, or the enemy in the second scene, when we looked at last week, was the forces of evil. Because here we had a guy, when he gets to the other side, to the land of the Gerasenes, or the Kerosenes, as I started calling them now, um, when you get to the other side, there's this man who's living among the tombs who's possessed. Well, he's run into possessed people before, right? And it wasn't a big deal, but this guy's not, not just possessed. He's like uber-possessed. He's like a legion of demons are in him, and he's uncontrollable. He's untameable. The Mark tells us that many times, oftentimes, they had tried to chain him and to shackle him, probably for his own protection. And every single time, what happened? He breaks the chains. He he. Breaks the shackles in pieces. He cannot be tamed night and day. He's out in the the mountains and in the tombs screaming, cutting himself. It's a horrible scene. No one can do anything here, right? Jesus can. But again, what seems impossible to man is, is easily overcome with just a word from Jesus. He is king over evil. And now in this third and final scene, there is one last danger or enemy or obstacle for Jesus to overcome. And it's been alluded to in the previous two scenes, I mean, because when they're on the sea, you, you see that they think they're going to die And when he gets to the other side of the sea, you've got a man who is living among the tombs. He's in the realm of death. You've got this concept of death that's been alluded to in both the previous scenes. But now, here finally in scene three, you you see Jesus addressing it head on. It's the enemy of death itself, the the ultimate hunter of man's soul and life. And so like we've done for the last two weeks, what we're going to do today is we're going to come to this story and just try. Again, I'm asking you as best you can to try To throw away everything you've thought about the story before and to try to read it with as fresh of eyes as possible so that you can see the larger point that I really think Mark is intending us to see that Jesus is king over all. So let's begin just by simply noticing the setting. At the end of the last scene, after Jesus had cast out the demon, the people of the land of the Gerasenes had done what to Jesus? They had asked him to leave. And I pointed out, as we were going through that, the irony that is included throughout that particular section. Because uh, here's a man that's possessed by demons, and everyone's scared of him. They're trying to chain him. They keep him away from them. And so when you see Jesus heal the guy, and they come up, and they see the man now clothed, he's sitting, he's in his right mind, you think they'd be really happy with Jesus particularly, but they're not. What are they? They are afraid of him. That's kind of ironic, but then it's even more ironic what they do next. After Jesus cast out the demon, they proceed to cast Jesus out. They ask him to leave their shores, to leave their country and go back to where he was. And there's a number of things like that in the story. And Mark picks that up here in verse 21 off that ironic twist. He tells us, and this next scene happens when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side. So as I showed you last week, he had been down here in the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. This is the land of the Gerasenes, generally speaking. Don't take that dot as being specific, but in that general area. And so now he's most likely going to head back across the, the water back to Capernaum, to his home base. And sure enough, when he gets there, Mark tells us that a great crowd had gathered about him, and he's back beside the sea, right where we were in chapter 4. And it's into this setting that our first main character, of course, other than Jesus and the disciples, our first main character enters the scene. Mark tells us in verse 22 that one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus or Jairus by name, came to him and seeing him fell at his feet. And before we look at, at why Jairus is doing this, let me just quickly make sure you understand who this guy is and why this is important, why Mark is even pointing out who he is. If, if you've been with us at all, through our study of Mark, we have run into this uh, word synagogue over and over and over again. It's very central to Jewish life. Jesus being in that culture is a part of that. He keeps running into it as, as well. And if you were with us in September of last year, I'm sure you remember perfectly everything that I explained to you about what a synagogue is and, and how it functions. But in case you weren't or in case you don't, let me just quickly remind you of a few things. The word synagogue simply means a gathering place. That's it, okay? It's a gathering place. And in that sense, it is very similar to what we think of today as a, as a church building. It was a place for the Jews to gather for community, for teaching, and for worship. And having said that, let me make sure you understand, the synagogue is not the temple, Okay? Make sure you don't forget that as you read the Gospels. The synagogues that you'll see throughout the New Testament are not the temple because the temple, only one, the temple is where? Where is it located? Jerusalem. So if you need to go to a feast, you need to go offer sacrifices, you need to go speak to a priest, none of that is going to be happening at a synagogue. All of that happens at the the temple. The synagogue was simply a gathering place for the Jews in a particular city to gather for community for teaching, and for worship. In order to have one in your city, you had to have 10 devout Jewish men, males. They had to have some wealth in order to build this thing and run it. Uh, There was no pastor at this thing called the synagogue, but there was someone or some ones who were designated as rulers of the synagogue. And the ruler's responsibility was not to be the primary teacher. He would not be doing like what I'm doing now necessarily all the time. His job would simply be to organize services, to make sure that there was a teacher present who could, who could handle things. He's going to keep the building maintained, maintain the, the scrolls, the, the scriptures that they had. And this guy, the ruler, or these guys that would be doing this within a particular location... They're like one step down from the scribes. If you've got the priests up here, you've got the scribes here, you've got the rulers of the synagogue here. That means they're a big deal. These, these, are a, these guys are a big deal in this particular community, and that is who has come to Jesus here in verse 22. This guy, Jairus, is an important guy in the Jewish community there in Capernaum, and for him to come to Jesus... Asking for help, asking that Jesus will heal his daughter so that she can live—it's—it's it's a really big deal. Well, why is he here? We well, already said it. He he falls at Jesus's feet here and he implores him earnestly, saying, "My little daughter is at the point of death." Parents, picture this: as you Let's try to bring the story to life in your mind, my little daughter. Is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And just stop there and think about the faith, right? That this man is expressing. In this comment to Jesus, clearly he believes that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, he's from a, a town a little ways west of them, but but he set up shop here in Capernaum, he's been coming and going, he's been teaching, he's been doing stuff here, he believes that this man can heal his daughter of whatever life-threatening disease has come upon her. Jesus has done this in Capernaum before, so maybe Jairus was aware of that, maybe he knows people who have been healed, whatever the case, he he just wants Jesus to do the same thing for his daughter. And as you can see here in verse 24, Jesus agrees. He's going to go with him. He's going to heal his daughter. But, it, but it's at that point when he's made this decision, okay, okay, I'm coming. Let's, let's, go, let's go see her. It's at that point then that Mark inserts a little detail in the story that is about to take us in a completely different direction, it would seem. He tells us here that a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And remember, true or false, false. in Mark, crowds are always a good thing, right? False. In Mark, crowds are normally negative. Occasionally, they're neutral. But normally they're negative for Jesus, and in this particular case, they're clearly negative because they are acting as an impediment to Jesus being able to get to this girl to give her the help that she so desperately needs. Now, understanding that, stop and recognize that what we're about to enter into is is, is something that we've seen before, isn't it? It's, it's that literary device, that literary feature that Mark likes to use uh, that's called intercalation. Because beginning in verse 25, you're going to stop thinking about and worrying about this little girl at all. Now, as Mark is about to do this, he's going he's to take another story and put it right in the middle. We call that intercalation where you take one story and you kind of divide it by putting another one in the middle of it. And the reason why you do that if you're Mark, if you're an author, is because there's something about that story in the middle that is going to impact and have a a, a major impact on, a major significance on the rest of the story around it. The second story in this particular case is the story that we normally think of as the woman with the issue of blood. Okay, we've forgotten about the little girl for a moment. We're we're now focused on this woman. Mark describes her here as a woman, no name is given, who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And that it happened for 12 years straight tells us that it's not just a, a, a severe menstrual problem. And I'm not trying to be funny, I'm trying to make sure you think this through biblically. She's got some kind of real hemorrhaging problem here, and he tells us that she had suffered much under many physicians. Do you hear these words? He's trying to help you understand how bad it is. Note those ideas. He tells us that she had spent all that she had, and at the end of all that money, and at the end of all those treatments by all those doctors, no one, no one else, Could heal her. In fact, she had gotten worse throughout all of that. And bleeding is no small problem. The Bible says that the life of the body is in the blood, right? If you bleed and you can't stop bleeding, what happens to you? You die. So as we read this story, I don't know that we first approach it with the level of significance and importance that is really going on here. This is a woman with a major problem. She's bleeding to death all the time. And so, having heard the reports about Jesus' ability to heal, she's devised a plan. As he passed by on his way, Mark writes to to Jairus' house, she sneaks up behind him and she touches his garments, she touches his clothes, and, and thinking to herself as she's doing this, if I touch even his garments, even his clothes, then I will be made well. And I don't know about you, but in the past as I've read through this and not really thought about it deeply, I've been kind of confused by this. Like, why take this particular approach? Why have this kind of mindset? Well, think about it for a moment, and hopefully this will help clear some of this up. In, in, relation, to her, in relation to her approach, sneaking up behind him, trying to touch just the hem of his garments, why is she doing that? Well, she's unclean. You think about it in their society. Think about it in relation to the Old Testament law. Someone who is bleeding is unclean. For, for a woman who was menstruating, she, she was unclean through the entire period of her cycle there. She, she couldn't be touched. Anything she sat on, anything she touched, anyone she touched, they were unclean religiously, ceremoniously. They, they had to go through a whole process to be re-cleansed. It's not a good thing. And if it's someone with a bigger problem than that, then they are always unclean. They are like lepers in this society, outcasts. You stay away from me. Don't come near me. Don't touch me. She would be a person who no one would want near her, near them. And since she's been to so many doctors and she's tried all these treatments for 12 years, it's almost certain that everyone in this community knows about her problem. I mean, how do you hide this? 12 years of this thing. She's used to avoiding people. She's used to being the outcast, and that explains her approach. She, she's trying to get in to do something that is unlawful for her to do. To touch Jesus in any way, shape, or form is offensive to him and offensive to the society. In relation to her mindset, it almost sounds like magic. <laughs> well, if I can just touch his clothes something about his clothes that will, that will heal me. This is what she says or what she thinks. Is she thinks Jesus is so powerful, which is good. Glad she thinks that Jesus is so powerful because he is. But she somehow has, has kind of in her mind mixed this up a little bit, and now she thinks he's so powerful even his clothes can heal me. She can just get to those and everything will be fine. And guess what? She's right. It's kind of the amazing part of the story if you think about it. Mark tells us that as soon as she touches his clothes, that immediately, boom. immediately, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Amazing. That's a miracle. And Jesus Mark says, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, he stops and he turns around and he says to the crowd, "Who touched me?" Now, if you're picturing the scene correctly, then you should realize how ridiculous of a question that is, right? I mean, with no offense to Jesus, I'm just saying it very plainly. This is a ridiculous question, the first of two that he's going to ask in this overall story. This is a ridiculous question. Why stop and ask who did it? And yet Jesus is, is undeterred, and in verse 32, excuse me, verse 31, you, you see that the disciples recognize how ridiculous this is. They're like, what, "What do you mean? Who touched you? Look at the crowd. Everyone's touching you. <laughs> how, what are you asking here, Jesus? They don't understand it at all. Jesus is undeterred. in verse 32, he just stands there looking around, just waiting. Can you picture him? Like just scanning? like this, waiting for whoever it was to come forward, he knows he wants her to come forward and admit it, I believe. And the woman knows that he's waiting for her to come forward and she does in fear and trembling, Mark says. And if you're wondering why she's afraid, I don't think it's like the Gerasenes. They became afraid of Jesus after he had done this great work of healing this man, of casting the demons out. I think she's afraid because of who she is because of her society, her culture. She knows that what she has done is, a, is, is not an acceptable thing. And yet Jesus, she comes and she falls before him. She tells him the whole truth. And Jesus's words to her must have been amazing, both to her and to everyone listening. He speaks to her tenderly. He calls her daughter. Is That's interesting. I'll just say that. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And what I want you to notice here is that Jesus is clarifying for for her what exactly has healed her. You see, it wasn't the clothes. She she needs to understand this. She comes to him, this thought, well, if I just touch his clothes, then I'll be made well. No, 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 daughter, daughter. It's not the clothes. It's your faith. That has made you well. Sure, it's not a perfect faith. Clearly not. She thinks that the clothing can somehow play a role in this. But, but yet, just the fact that she believed, just the fact that she believed enough to act, enough to do what didn't seem right or appropriate in that particular moment, that she had that much faith to come to Jesus. This is what heals her. And what you see in this unimportant. Unnamed woman, this outcast of society that no one would want to be around, that feels like she has to sneak up to Jesus to to get near him, is that even imperfect faith in the king is enough to overcome the forces of death itself. Now, this is an important lesson inserted right here into the middle of the story, especially for the guy who's probably standing off to the side going, Why are we stopping? I mean, Think about this, as a parent, if you have come to the one and only person that you believe could possibly save your child's life, and you're dragging them through the streets of town, and they stop and have a conversation with a woman like this, an outcast, what are you feeling at that moment? You've got to be aggravated, frustrated, looking at your watch, worried, scared, Here's Jairus over here this entire time, and sure enough, as you look at verse 35, it's too late. While Jesus is saying these words to this woman, your, daughter, your faith has made you well, while these words are coming out of his mouth, there's another conversation happening behind him between someone from his home and him saying, "It's too late. Your daughter's dead." don't trouble the master any further. Jesus, even though he's finishing up his comments to this woman, he hears that message and he turns and he says to him, do not fear only what? Believe. Did, Did those words mean any more to you now? Just in the context of the story, do they mean any more to you now that you see what has happened to this woman? Because here she was facing an impossible situation, was she not? No doctor could heal her. She'd spent every penny she had trying to, to get better. There's no more money to spend. She's just getting worse and worse. And it's not like she has perfect faith. She doesn't even fully understand who Jesus is, but she believes in him. She believes in his power. She just wants to get to him, maybe not with perfect knowledge, but she knows there's something about him. Do do you see why Jairus needs to see this? His daughter is dead. There's no more impossible situation than that. He may not have perfect faith. I mean, clearly he believes that this teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, can can heal diseases. He's probably seen it before, but I mean, can he really? Can he really overcome death itself? Can he? Can he really still help? Don't fear. Only believe. Jesus says. And so they walk to the house. He takes Peter, James, and John inside with them. Inside, the morning has already begun. There's a commotion. Mark says people are weeping, wailing loudly. When he enters, he makes his second ridiculous comment of the day. Why are you all weeping? I mean, it's, it's, it's funny. It really is funny if you think about it, because when you walked into a house where someone, or a hospital room where someone has just died and everyone is weeping and in tears, and you're like, what's wrong with you people? Like, everyone would look at you and go, are, are you stupid? We're, we're weeping because this little girl is dead. And, and recognizing that that's the answer, you see what he says next the child is not dead, she's sleeping. And just like the disciples responded, kind of like, what are you you talking about with these comments? The people in the house respond with similar disbelief at the question. Mark writes that they all start laughing at him. They're weeping one moment. He walks in. He says what he says. And now they're all laughing at him. Just picture that. And so he puts all those people outside. He takes the little girl's parents. He takes the three disciples in to where the child was. He gently takes her by the hand and he says to her, Talitha, Kumai, Aramaic, little girl, I say to you, arise and immediately, just like with the woman with the issue of blood, immediately she gets up and she starts walking around the room because she's about 12 years old, Mark writes, 12, Interesting. And every one of them, her parents, the disciples, and I'm sure all the people outside, are amazed. Amazed at Jesus' power. And then the story ends with two quick commands from Jesus. One, don't tell anybody. <laughs> He's done this before. He's going to keep doing it through the Gospels. It's not time. He doesn't want everyone to know. Though, of course, when you try to keep things like that quiet, everyone knows. Right? That's just guaranteed. And then two, you see his tenderness again. Give her give her something to eat. now. Think about these two scenes now that we've walked through them, okay? They are completely different and yet 100% identical. Think about it like this. Think about their differences. Think about just the people. And I think most of the differences can be pretty easily summed up with the people. You've got, on the one hand, this guy named... Jairus, right? He's named. He's important. He's He is male. He's got status in the society because he's a ruler of the synagogue. He's probably wealthy. I'm just assuming that because of his status and because of his home. He's respected. He's got a daughter and family, right? This is This is one end of the social spectrum. On the other end, you have some unnamed female that nobody knows about. She is uh, an outcast, she is destitute, and she is most likely alone. It would be very hard to imagine how she could have a husband and children given her situation. These two people come from opposite ends of the spectrum, but think of the similarities. Both have to come to the same person, Jesus. Both have to come in the same way falling before his feet. Jairus does it in advance of the healing. She does it after the healing. In both cases, you have uncleanness. It has to be overcome. For the woman, she's been bleeding for how long? 12 years. And because of that, she is unclean. This girl who is how old? 12 years old has died. And if you touch a dead body, you're also unclean. And yet we've seen it time and time again, and we'll see it more and more through the Gospels, that when Jesus comes into contact with uncleanness, he is never infected by it. He always infects the uncleanness with his own cleanness. He brings it back to the way it should have been. In both cases, there is death. Hers is a slow death as she's bleeding to death over time. This girl has apparently died very quickly, but both are dying. There's fear In both parts of the story, she's afraid of touching him and being found out. The father's afraid that his daughter's going to die. And he's afraid when she finds out she does die. In both cases, there has to be faith. It's not perfect necessarily, but it's faith in Jesus and it's faith in action. Note that. Both of them had to go and do, they had to come, they had to ask, they had to touch, they they had to put their faith in action In both cases, there's healing. The issue of blood stops. The girl is raised. What do you see? That Jesus is king over death. Through faith, he can conquer anything. And the danger, the obstacle, the enemy in this scene was the forces of death that entered this world when Adam sinned and have plagued us, have stalked us ever since. And who can overcome death? No one, right? We all know that. No one Except for one person. Except for Jesus. He's king over chaos. He's king over evil. And he is most, most certainly king over death. And nothing, nothing, nothing can possibly overcome him and stop his kingdom from coming. And yet, we have to realize in this story that, that the problem with the story, the problem it And stick with me just for a moment because I don't want to lose you as I say this. The problem with this story is that the solution that Jesus provides to both of these ladies, while amazing and miraculous, I'm not taking away from that, it is not the solution that is most needed. Okay, Think about this with me. It's just the Band-Aid. That's why that phrase has been in my my mind all week long after studying this. It's just a Band-Aid solution because... I hate saying it this way, but all he is doing here, that's that's the part that feels wrong, but all he's doing here is he's putting these two ladies back to their pre-problem state. So you've got the, the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years. He is going to put her back to a time like before she had that. He's going to get her back to kind of normal, right? For, for the 12-year-old girl who has died, he's going to put her back to a time before the sickness or disease has come, but but without taking anything away from that, because both of those are amazing tasks, feats. I I acknowledge it. I praise God for them. It's just important to realize that all he's done is he's just given them a temporary reprieve from the immediate dangers at hand. Because both ladies will suffer pain, sickness, injury in the future, and both ladies will die again. Well, her in this case. It's It means that what we see here, as amazing as this story is, folks, it's not our final hope. I want you to think about why I'm saying this for a moment. Because the tendency for us, I think, as people is we see people we love that are hurting, that are sick, that are dying. And we're like, God, won't you heal them? Won't you give them life? Won't you? Good, pray for those things. I pray them too. But this life is not their ultimate hope. Do you understand that? Because if he heals them, they're just going to get sick again. If he, if he brings them back from the, the edge of death, they're just going to die later. The hope that we have is not the hope necessarily that we see here in this story. What we see here in the story is kind of like a, a down payment of hope, if you will. It's, it's proof to us that this man, Jesus, has a way of conquering death. This just isn't it. Our hope is is that this same Jesus who can conquer death in this scene will eventually take steps, actions, do things that will conquer death forever. And that's what he did on the cross. More specifically, that's what he did on Easter morning. When he rose from the grave, he proved that death could not touch him Anymore. There was no more death to come. There's no more sickness to come. He raises or rises with a new life, a new body that nothing could ever touch. And so our hope then is that in Jesus we too will eventually receive these new bodies that sickness, pain, injury, death have no power over whatsoever. It's just, it's just too easy for us to read these kinds of accounts and put our hope in those things. Does that make sense? Like, Jesus, just fix my sawed-off finger. If I just had that sawed-off finger back, that's a long story if you don't know it, just put it back, Lord, then, then everything would be better. No, I don't need my finger restored. I just need a new finger altogether. I need a new body, something, something that can't be subject to those things anymore. And so what I want to remind you this morning, where I want to leave us is this, is that what we see here is not what we ultimately want. Do you believe that? This is not what we're ultimately living for. This is not what we ultimately want. What we ultimately want is a life that comes only, only, only through the resurrection and new life offered to us in Jesus Christ. Will you bow your heads with me for a moment?